This morning, I'm going to be wrapping up our Lent series. We've been talking about thriving in exile. So for those of you who haven't been here, I'll give you a little bit of a sense for what we've been talking about. Um, for, the, for those of you who have been around for a little bit uh, during this series, you've heard, I would say many times during this Lent season, that the conditions of exile are that the world around us will not be abiding by God's rule and reign. So it's kind of like a working definition that I've been using. Uh, and in this, in this exile period, we're in, we consider a wilderness experience. And in this wilderness existence, there seems to be very little fear of God in the world around us. That's an indicator of that. Um, and living in exile as Christians means constantly being vigilant against the enemy's temptations and attacks. Is anyone feeling that way during this Lent season? Are you feeling a little bit more spiritual attack? Maybe illnesses, stuff going around with families? Okay, and that's not uncommon. So know that people are with you, we're praying for you. This is, I think, sometimes attack can feel, put us on a defensive. Um, but that also means God's doing something. When the enemy's attacking, there's a reason for that, right? It's because he's trying to prevent something from happening that God's moving. So pay attention to that too. While we're, while we're protecting each other through prayer, pray also for what God's trying to teach us through that uh, and where God's trying to move in this Excel, Excel, Excel time. So, just to get a little perspective on this exile thing, I've been reading a little bit about church history, uh, as I'm prone to do, I guess. And um, over the years, so the church has been around for, for many, many years now, of course, and over the years, the church has gone through seasons of knowing that this world is exile and has gone through many, many, many seasons of thinking that this world is home. Okay, and the posture is very different when you're thinking about the world as home versus understanding that the kingdom of God, that the church of God is in exile. One of the things that we see through church history is that when we think that this world is home, we start trying to impose Christian rules on people by force. So think about like, you know, the, the Holy Roman Empire when you know, like Christianity was sort of ruling the day, so they sort of impose or sort of force conversion or colonizing is a very common way to do this, right? You're converting them to your culture, but also to your religion, but as a use, as a way to subjugate people to your way of life and not necessarily because you're trying to save their souls, even if that's sort of the expressed intent. So what we've seen over history is that the church is sold out from time to time, more often than maybe we're comfortable admitting to emperors and kings and has been tolerant of and sometimes actually rationalized and approved things like slavery and the, rise of, and the rise of Nazism in Germany. The church has been complicit in a lot of ways, but the good news is that God is and has been faithful throughout history. We see this in the Bible, too, with, with Israel, right? They, they're, they're faithful, they're with God, they fall, God's faithful, rescues them, so on and so on, and that pattern has continued with the church to this day. And God, in his faithfulness, has raised up women and men over time, though imperfect people, at crucial times to steer us back to the essentials of our faith and to who Jesus is, to, to, to ground us back in who Christ is. And on the macro level, the church has taken a lot of bad turns, made some pretty significant mistakes. However, it's also true that God has worked in the local church to love, heal, and protect people and make his glory and his name known. And despite humanity's fallenness, God has used his church to save people into his kingdom and to heal and restore his creation that was ruptured when Adam and Eve sinned. 
And I would say that the church is most alive when it's convicted of its powerlessness without God. When we start thinking we know what we're doing, it's when we start getting ourselves in trouble. And when we realize that this world is wilderness and that we are in exile until Jesus returns, that's when the church really starts coming alive. And we might think of this wilderness period in exile as a bad thing, as an oppressive thing, as a thing we want to get out of. But a lot of times it's actually, it's actually not a bad thing. It's actually good. It's good news. Because what this means is that, God is that God's kingdom is breaking into this world when the church itself is most humble and obedient and fully living our lives into the truth that dependence on and surrender to God is in fact the good life. It's the way, the only way I would say to God's shalom. So specifically in this series, we've talked about some practical implications of how to thrive in exile. We guard against the snares of money. We worship in spirit and in truth together. And we understand how God intends family and community in a broader sense than maybe our culture would understand it to spread God's kingdom. If you missed any of that stuff, you know what I'm talking about, the podcast, I believe the podcast is up to date, so please check out those previous sermons. And this morning, we'll be closing this series by talking about what Christian work exile looks like. So I'm trying to get real practical to close our series this morning. So as we gather, I don't know where your opinions or your feelings are right now around work. Uh, I don't know if you love your job and you're just ready to roll and you're just waking up every morning energized to go and see your coworkers. By the smiles, I'm thinking that's probably a minority of us. Uh, I don't know, maybe some of us have been praying for a more life-giving job or for a job period for a long time. The students among us are preparing for a new career, perhaps, or a new job. Uh, and some of you may know exactly what you want to do. You've known since you were little, you want to be a doctor, and that's going to happen. God's called that on you. Some of us, not as fortunate as that, aren't so sure what we're doing. We're in grad school. We're like, why did I do this? What am I doing? Why am I spending all this money? Maybe you're in that spot. And some of us are discerning whether to leave our current places of employment for various reasons. And still others of us chose stop working for a season, or maybe for a good while, for family or for personal reasons. And now our work is raising kids and maybe working at the same time to support them. And believe me, as a parent, I know <laughs> it's a full-time job, so it's not easy. Uh, and perhaps some of us are feeling a little meh about our jobs right now. You know, it pays the bills, right? So it's important. It keeps the money rolling, but... You know, it's ultimately just a place we go for eight to ten hours a week, or a day, not a week. Um, some of us may wish. Um, but it's not your life's passion, right? You just, it's a job, you're there, you're not looking to switch, but you're also not terribly inspired day to day. Or more likely than not, you reson- more than one of the things I said has resonated with you. And it varies from day to day, week to week. Maybe you know you want to do a certain thing, you're called to do it, but it doesn't feel like that every single day, and that's okay. So what I want to do this morning, whatever your situation is, I want to take a step back. I want to consider what God's intention for work is and how work in exile can sometimes be really frustrating and really messy, but it can also be God-honoring. And in Genesis 2, so going all the way to the front of the Bible, we see that before the fall, God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work and care for it. So this is before the fall. And so work is a good thing. We're supposed to work. As much as some of us are like, ah, I don't want to work. It's actually, we're, we're created to work. And the same Hebrew word for work that's used before the fall is actually used, it's, it's, it's again used after the fall. But the difference is that the land of this time will not cooperate the same way it did before the fall. So Adam was working the land and taking care of it, and it was 
you know, it's like he probably didn't have to do much. It was just like blooming on its own, right? Awesome apples, whatever they were eating. But after the fall, the difference is that they still have to work the land and they still have to eat from the land, but it's not cooperating the same. Work is now becoming toil. It's becoming painful work because the ground will not yield its crops quite as easily. And there's a disconnect now between the ground, the earth, and humanity. And our rebellion fractured creation's relationship to God. The ground is now cursed. So before moving forward, I think it's important to see that even though it's a curse, there is grace in this. Sure, work is now toiled, but at least the earth is still providing food to sustain people. And it's by God's grace that we can eat. It's not a given, right? We have to remember this. God didn't have to make a way for Adam and Eve. He could just start it over. Just wipe them out, start fresh. But he didn't choose to do that. Instead, he chose to have mercy on them and so now on us. And in our text this morning in Psalm 90, we'll see that wisdom is the foundation of meaningful and lasting work. Now last week, and I didn't know this, uh, Pastor David wrote his newsletter reflection on Psalm 90. Did anyone read this? This is a good gauge to see who reads the newsletter too. Okay. So he's like, what? There's a newsletter? Yeah. So there's a newsletter, and he wrote a really good reflection. I'm kind of glad you didn't read it, a lot of you, because now it's going to be totally new to you. Um, so the risk, anyway, of looking like a bit of a copycat, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 90 for us and expand upon it. So if you can, as it comes up, if, if you're able, would you mind standing for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read this for us. This is Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout, throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be seen by, to your servants, your splendor to, your, to their children. The favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes. Establish the work of our hands. This is the word of God. You can take your seats. So give a little background on this psalm. If you look in your Bibles, it's, it attributes this psalm to Moses. And honestly, most of why I really love this psalm is because Moses wrote it. Um, and if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, Moses is traditionally credited with writing the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books are referred to as the Torah, and also I like to refer to it as the place where Bible, annual Bible reading plans go to die. I mean, how many of us have gotten stuck in like Leviticus, right, in like February, and it's like, ah, I can't go on. 
So if you're familiar with Moses' reading or writings or not, he is a central figure for Jewish people and for Christians. He was the leader God anointed to lead Israel out of slavery uh, from Egypt and to the cusp of the promised land. He led them for 40 plus years. For the first 40 years of his life, if you're familiar with Moses' story, you know that he was adopted into Pharaoh's family and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He grew up knowing that he was Hebrew and actually murdered an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. Has anyone seen the movie The Ten Commandments? Watch it, it's like a holiday thing for people. Okay, So you know all this stuff if you saw that movie, right, in, in very dramatic fashion. So what happened after that? He fled to the desert because he thought he'd be found out. And sure enough, Pharaoh does find out and tries to kill him. But Moses did get away in time. And so he lives out in Midian, which is in the desert, I believe. Um, and there he gets married, he has a son. And it's there that God shows up to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And the reason I detail Moses' life up until he encounters God is because knowing his life a little bit, I think, gives us a greater appreciation for where Psalm 90 is coming from. He, Moses has wisdom. I feel like that's pretty undeniable if you see his life and his work in the Bible. And he gained that wisdom by being educated in Pharaoh's household, making really tragic mistakes, living as a foreigner in a foreign land, and of course, most importantly, by encountering the living God, regularly communing with him. So he knows what it's like to have God turn your life upside down more than once. He knows what it's like to be called to something you feel completely and utterly unprepared for. He knows the guilt and shame of being a murderer. And Moses knows what it's like to have the same thankless job for 40 years. And a job where your employees and your coworkers are constantly questioning and doubting you. Some of them wanted to kill him at points, right? And trust him in the desert. He lived a hard, long, and arduous life. But of course, Moses was intimate with God in a way that very few people got to experience. Scripture tells us that Moses spoke to God face-to-face as his friend. So to me, when this man Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, as he does in verse 12, I say, all right, I believe you, because you've got the life and the credibility to speak from. I think the structure of Psalm 90 is also instructive for how we should approach and view our work in this life. There are 17 verses, and only the last one refers to our work. The rest of them are about God. And even that one's about God, um, but also our partnership with him in work. And, and the psalm, kind of taking you through it, opens with praise and recognizing that God is eternal and all-powerful. God is everlasting. In contrast, what our lives are like over in the blink of an eye, To God, a thousand years like a day that's just gone by. Our lives are 70 years, 80 if we're lucky. Many of those years are difficult and filled with sin. So no doubt this is a bit of a downer of a psalm. This isn't probably one that you're reading when you're looking for inspiration. But I think it is realistic. Life weighs heavy on the best of us. And all of us have at least some regrets if we're blessed enough to live a long life. Uh, My father-in-law was actually visiting the other week. He's recently retired, and he's worked really, really hard, very successfully for most of his life. And as he talks and he reflects, it's obvious that he's very proud of many things that he's done. You can also tell that he's worn the trouble of his years. Seeing him with our our daughter, our two-year-old daughter, is actually especially eye-opening. It's really cool. And in fact, both my wife's parents and my parents really marvel in our daughter, Jojo. And I, I think in many ways, I think they, they experience a lot of peace and joy when they see her, because I think they see her and her kind of enjoying just being a kid, 
as a job well done for them. They raised us well that you know, we were able to have our own kids, and I feel like there's a peace that comes from that. But I also believe that seeing this little one causes them to reflect on their own mortality, which is only natural, right? And being a grandparent, I think, is a life stage that Moses would say is probably a lucky one to reach for any grandparents in the room. If you don't agree with me, don't say anything. <laughs> in this stage of their lives, I, I think you know, there, there's a little bit more maybe to reflect on at this point in their lives and maybe looking forward. And it seems to me that Moses was in that stage of his life when he wrote this psalm. I don't know that, I'm just speculating, but it seems like maybe that's where he's writing this. And the conclusion that Moses comes to is to ask God to teach us to number our days. As Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation, he says, teach us to live well, teach us to live wisely and well. In other words, life is short, and the wise know how to live it well. Verses 13 to 16 are the response to recognizing that life is short and hard. Praise God, depend on God, and be joyful in God. Pray at all times for God's favor to be shown and experienced. And pray for God to confirm and affirm the work that we do. So pray that God will make our work count and last. So the next psalm, Psalm 91, which we won't get into though, serves as a counterpoint to Psalm 90. And there's actually, it talks a lot about their security in those who trust in the Lord. that's That's a more uplifting message. So why did I choose to preach out of Psalm 90 instead? It's because I think on a Palm Sunday where we're a week away from Resurrection Sunday, but the cross is in between, I think it's fitting to highlight just how dire our situation was before the cross. The only reason we can pray as Moses prays in verses 13 to 17 is, is because Jesus is unfailing love. Our years are filled with hardship and difficulties. We get sick. Our family members and friends get sick and pass away. We lose jobs. We fall into depression. Our parents get divorced get beat up in this life. But a week before the resurrection, we can stand firm in what Psalms 90 and 91 proclaim, that God is and has been our dwelling place, our home throughout all generations. That is my refuge and my fortress. Esther, I want to thank you for singing that song, Shelter. I I remember that song, I think, since I was in college. Um, And it brought back some memories for me. So even, even singing that song in preparation for this was was a blessing, so thanks for that. Um, and, and, you know, so looking at these psalms, from this I think we can see that work really needs to be put in a much larger perspective and in a proper perspective. Our work will only be meaningful if it's approached with wisdom and in full recognition that our identities are defined by God's goodness to us and our identities that, God's good, that God has been good to us. Not in what we output, but in who we are, who God has made us to be. It's so easy to lose that. He doesn't have to regard us, and yet he chooses to give us good work because he loves us, and he he takes joy in us. Okay, so I may be alone in this, um, but I think, I wonder if some of us may so quickly associate the word calling with work. Any of us do that? You raise your hand if that's something you've considered. or Not as many as I thought, actually, so this is going to fall a little flat. That's okay. So for those of us who did think that, We're not wrong, but (laughs) we're not wrong. Thank you, Pastor Michael. We're not wrong, but we're also, I think, defining calling a little too narrowly when we do that. Because all Christians are called to follow Jesus. And Romans 1 reads in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. In verses 6 and 7, again, 
And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all in Rome who are called by God and called to be his holy people. So the word there for calling is actually similar to being invited. This was actually a big deal for me when I saw this. So if you read that back, so Paul is invited to be an apostle. Gentile and Roman believers are invited to belong to Jesus and to be God's holy people. And Romans 8.28, maybe a favorite verse for some of us, would read, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been invited according to his purpose. I really, really love this idea of God inviting his people. Calling seems like a bit of a directive, doesn't it? Like, you do this, you do this. I'm sending you out. And that's true. But to me, inviting is warmer. God's ushering us into his kingdom, into his home. A warmness there, a hospitality there, a, a regard for who's coming in. There's a preparedness there. Not just sending you out into the unknown, but inviting you into what he's already doing. I think that's really beautiful. I hope that's encouraging for some of us this morning. Because that is our God. That's the character of our God. He invited enemies into his fold. Not only enemies in the sense that we're sinners, but also human enemies who are conflicting with each other were brought into the kingdom to become family, Jew and Gentile, black and white, men and women, colonizer and colonized. We're invited into the family of God where the power dynamics of this world no longer apply. It doesn't mean that they don't exist and don't have to be worked out, but it means that somehow, someway, God's reconciled us to be family. And that's for, that's a salvation. We're part of the amazing work that God's done on the cross. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, it reads, Look at who you were when you first got called or invited into this life. I don't see many of the best and brightest among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. This is the message translation. Um, everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. So in God's kingdom, power dynamics are not just inverted in the sense that the powerless now have power to, you know, to, to exact over their previous oppressors. No, we're actually all humbled in this, and God is exalted. And that's a hard thing, I think, for us to understand as humans. We want a reversal if we're oppressed. I think that's a very natural thing to want. For in power, we probably want to enjoy our power. But for those of us who are Christian and enjoy privilege and power, it's important not only to cede that power, but to do it out of humility and an understanding that that's who God's made us to be. And it's also clear that we're called and invited to repent of the ways that we've abused our power and privilege and exploited others. And then we have to take action. Then we have to be drastically different from this world because our God is drastically different from this world. So now taking it back to the calling, vocational calling, when we think about vocational calling, then that means we need to look drastically different from this world. Does that make sense? Okay. And the first way that the church should be drastically different is that we do not give more value or weight to any particular job or career. The stay-at-home mom or dad or unemployed person has equal standing in the kingdom of God. 
as a business person or teacher, missionary or pastor. And regardless of our vocations or callings, are the same. It's to follow Jesus, make him known in this world through our lifestyles and ways that we pursue justice. So none of us is more or less Christian than another because of our jobs. Our jobs are secondary callings to the reality that we have been invited into God's kingdom. Now, we've probably learned at this point to not like, outwardly express that. right? We're probably not like, outwardly judging people for their jobs. And most of us are probably polite enough at this point to kind of keep that thought to ourselves. But what I do, and I don't know if this is true of some of you, is I judge myself. I hold this weird standard to myself. I start wondering if I don't measure up because my job isn't obviously Christian enough. Sure, I spend a lot of time serving the church, but I could do more, right? I could do more. I want my job to be bigger and brighter and more justice and so service-oriented and like that person or this person. But why do I want those things? Is it so I can feel better about myself and the sacrifices I made for God? I mean, God doesn't need that, right? Scripture tells us that God desires obedience, not sacrifice. So the question, if, if I'm discerning my vocational calling, should be, is God inviting me into another job or vocation? And are people I trust and who love me discerning a different path from me? Or is, or is my desire conflicted with being more egocentric and more self-centered? Maybe I'm just bored, right? How many of us change jobs because we're just bored? Or I think I deserve a better or more glamorous job. I know I've thought that a lot. I think the difference here is the starting point. Who's initiating my work? Is it God or is it me? Is my desire to obey God or is it to, to, to obey something else and, and fall to something else? Second, as Christians, I think we need to resist the notion that our jobs define us. This is also very, very difficult for some of us. And this is something I think that's been preached before in our church. But the message from our culture is so strong on this, I think it bears repeating. The way that God measures worth and the way our world measures worth are very, very different. Can we agree on that? Our world places value on people based on their economic contributions. Uh, Either Dennis or Marquita, I think, alluded to this earlier. So those of us with more education or expertise or hours to produce more widgets or add ever more slightly to that bottom line of the stock value are paid well, we're paid handsomely, we're given really nice benefits, we have access to generous retirement plans. And those who cut ethical and legal corners to make more money can hide safely behind the mentality that, well, that's business, right? That's just how it goes. Look at at how many high-level executives are now being accused of sexual harassment. It's not like this behavior just started recently. This goes back years and has victimized many, many men and women. And our society can be tolerant of a lot of things for a very long time if you contribute economic value. Meanwhile, a growing part of the population gets labeled as felons and have virtually no chance of stable employment. Those with less access to education and training lose their jobs and companies find cheaper labor elsewhere. Since the U.S. isn't a manufacturing country anymore, what good are these low-skilled workers? It's not as if they're human and deserve the dignity of meaningful work, right? They get left behind. Women are explicitly or implicitly expected to postpone having children to justify the investment the company's made in them. They're expected to dress in feminine ways, but not too much, not too much, because then you're asking for attention. Women should act like men to prove they can lead, but also need to be nurturing and motherly at the same time. Don't even get me started if you're disabled. 
Our society views those who cannot provide economic value as less than human, quite simply. How else do you explain women being forced to act like men to climb the ladder while also being expected to take care of the kids and all of this for less money than men make? How else do you explain that in 2014, 47% 20 to 24 year old black men in Chicago and 44% in the state of Illinois were out of work and out of school, compared with 20% of Hispanic men and 10% of white men in the same age group. The blame in our society falls on the poor for not finding employment or steady housing. Instead of everyone taking responsibility for each other and recognizing that luck has way more to do with good fortune than our hard work does. Personal ramifications, too. This might only be me, but I'm guessing at least some of you feel this way, that work in exile may feel sometimes like you just need to be productive all the time. You can't turn off that email. You can't turn off your brain. I personally combat this a lot when I'm with my daughter and I'm just playing with her. I'm supposed to be playing with her. But I struggle against the constant desire to be doing something more productive than being her dad. Playing with her, reading to her, it's not enough sometimes. It just feels like, ah, I'm not making good enough use of my time. It's a terrible confession to make, but it's true. And there's this nagging sense in me that I need to be growing, advancing, improving, or positioning myself for a promotion or the next step in my career or ministry ideas. And I believe I do this because I'm conditioned to believe that my value as a person is closely tied to my economic value and what I contribute to society. A cool new thing I learned trying to work, trying at work, or in my ministry. Now, don't get me wrong, and don't hear me wrong. Growth is very, very important, very much in line with God's character. He's constantly at work in his people, us, to make us more like Jesus. God disciples us. But his work in us involves stopping sometimes, doesn't it? As Dennis so eloquently told us today, today is the day we stop. Today is the day we're spit out of that big fish. Today's the day we stop because God doesn't stop working. What, and, and for me, when I stop work, to play with my daughter for an afternoon. See, that work doesn't matter as much as I thought. Sure, emails may be waiting for me, but they can wait. Even my church emails and messages can wait. As much as it pains me to admit, if I'm a few days late with writing a community group curriculum, it won't be the end of the world. <laughs> In the Bible... We see that our worth is not measured by the economic value that we contribute. What do we see in the Bible? Instead, we see our worth is measured by the fact that God created us in his image. God is great and worthy, and so we as his creation have worth. In order for our work to last, to mean something, it has to be about more than just the work of our hands. Our work will only be meaningful if it's approached with wisdom and in full recognition of who God is. Psalm 90 tells us that God has been our dwelling place, our home. But God is also eternal. Think about that. Spoke planets into being. He said it and they showed up. In verse 3, we see the proper response to an eternal and all-powerful God are fear and humility. So don't return us to mud, is what Moses says. A thousand years are like a day to God. We live 70 years. What do we know? What do we know? We don't know anything. 
If Moses, after all that he went through, and the intimacy that he had with God, fears God and is humble, how much more should we be? If anyone had the right to boast about a job well done, it's Moses, right? Instead, his response is, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's where wisdom is found. It's in God. It's in recognizing our, our very, 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 very limited humanity and God's eternity, his goodness, his all-powerfulness. It's not even a word. See, wisdom isn't gained through knowledge or developing expertise or even doing good work. It's in recognizing and living into the reality that we are dust without God's favor. We're only worth anything because God has chosen to be our dwelling place. The only thing that keeps our work from being utter toil and a complete waste of time and energy is that God shows us, shows us favor. He gives value to our labor. Sorry, I'm fighting a cold. He gives the ground permission to yield the crops. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, he still allowed the ground to yield crops to them. He's the one who grows children's brains and shapes hearts. He's the one who protects families and judges with righteousness and equity. So therefore, our work needs to be in step with who God is. That's not to say we should all be pastors and missionaries. What it does mean, though, is that our, our work should reflect who God is. Does our work commodify and exploit people in creation? Just as we were thoughtful a few weeks ago about where our money goes, we interrogated our bank accounts and our spending habits to see what we were purposefully or indirectly funding or profiting from, I think we need to do the same about our work and about our workplaces. And in many ways, this is harder to do because I think sometimes our jobs can be a little more closely tied to our identities than even our money is. Deuteronomy 14.29 and 15.10 tell us that God blesses the work of your hands if you are generous to the aliens, Levites, fatherless, and widows. Did you know that many early Christians in the Roman Empire hurt their livelihoods pretty significantly because they wouldn't take certain jobs? For example, they wouldn't work in arenas that involved building walls and temples to other gods. And some wouldn't teach in schools that taught with materials that told of ancient gods. I'm not saying those are the lines we need to draw today, but where do we draw the line in our day and age and in our culture? Our work needs to go beyond not doing harm. Our work should be life-giving to people. Our posture and our attitudes at work should reflect our creator. So that principally means that we are excellent, ethical, and contribute to flourishing. We don't just work for a paycheck, though obviously that's very important. Our ambitions should be to be generous, to move our organizations and families in directions that bring justice and opportunities for the alien, the fatherless, the widow, and the poor. Like, you know your work contexts better than I do. But how can you bring God's shalom into these places and into the people that are touched even by your organization's outputs? You know what I mean by that? How can we ensure that people in our organizations are treated as fully human? That women aren't expected to act like men to succeed, that recruiting practices are not biased, that children and youth are respected, empowered, and given voices, and that any technology or data analysis that's used does not dehumanize. And then we know where to draw the line and when to walk away. If our organizations don't treat women equally to men, we should partner and advocate for women in ways that empower them, not just tell them what to do, but 
take their lead. If our schools have cultures that dehumanize children or abuse adults, we pray fervently and speak truth to power, sometimes we have to leave. We also organize and fight for policy changes that provide better employment opportunities for disenfranchised peoples. And for those of us who work in healthier situations, we rally around our community and pray with them and care for them and make sure that they know that they're supported and loved. We can also support organizations and ministries that train and employ the homeless and those that just got out of prison. Now, some of us work in nonprofits or Christian organizations, and sometimes I would say that we're the worst offenders at this. What I mean is that sometimes people get overworked in nonprofits. Is that true? This is what I hear, yeah? Okay. You get worked pretty hard, and it sometimes is rationalized because you're doing good work. But... It's not so great either, right? We need to be treating not only the people we reach well as fully human with full dignity, but also our employees, right? Recognizing that, hey, Sabbath is a real thing, especially for Christian organizations. You need to push for that if you work in a Christian organization. Make sure there's room for a Sabbath and people aren't getting overworked, that they have time for themselves, not only for self-care, but also family and, and life, paying bills, going to the bank, whatever it is people need to do. And not only should we serve and love our neighbors well, but our organizations need to have systems, processes, and leaders that are in place that value people above all else. Not not more than making money, and I would say sometimes not even more than pursuing a mission. We need to make sure that people are valued and dignified. I feel like that's very easily overlooked in our society for whatever reason these days. So all that to say, I think there's a lot of ways for us to be Christian in our workplaces and in supporting just organizations. So this may not be a terribly satisfying way to end because maybe some of these ideas don't land. But what I'm going to ask you to do for this week is to be thoughtful, creative, and most of all prayerful about the ways in which we can reflect and worship God through our work. Ask that you really take a close look at how your organization treats people, what kind of outputs there are, who are they investing in, um, any number of things you can think about how data is used. And I keep saying that because I'm reading an awful lot about the ways technology has been used in pretty horrendous ways to, to not only dehumanize, but also to almost magnify biases that people already have. So if you've bent in that way, I'm going to encourage you to take a look. Start asking questions. It's really, really important that we don't just check our Christian parts of our brains and our hearts at the door when we go to work, but that we bring our full selves. We bring worship into our places of work, not just in the ways we talk about Jesus or people knowing that we go to church, certainly that, but also in the ways that we go about our work, but that we push for things that may not make sense financially, but that are humanizing and will, will ultimately bring glory to God. Does that make sense? you pray with me? Father God, we thank you this morning that you are and have been our shelter. God, for all generations dating back to Adam and Eve until now, through Israel, exile, through Jesus coming, through the church, 
through the ebbs and flows of history and of the ways the church has been more or less faithful at times, God, the thing that's been stable is you, God. You have been our shelter. And none of these things, none of our work matters. None of this stuff counts for anything if that's not true. So, God, we are so thankful this morning, Lord, that you are faithful. You choose to be our shelter. You pull us into your shelter. and We are trying to run away from you. Don't let us go. Chase us down. And in the person of Jesus, in, 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 in Jesus' life, in who he was, in his work on the cross, in the resurrection, in all of who Jesus is, God, we see that he is the shelter. And so, God, this, as we approach um, the close of Lent, I don't know how Lent has been for many of us, but God, I do pray that regardless of how it's been, whether it's been filled with highs or filled with lows, everything in between, God, I pray that this week we would hear from you clearly. Lord, that this holy week you would speak very clearly to our church and tune our ears and our hearts to hear you, God. So I pray, God, that this would be a restful Sabbath, a Sabbath day that we can enjoy time with friends and family, with you, without the specter of work creeping into our minds. God, I pray, even for those of us who love our jobs, it doesn't mean we have to be on all the time. God, I pray that you would teach us to number our days, to recognize work is important, yes, but what matters more is glorifying you. So God, I pray that you would, on the Sabbath day, orient us properly to who you are. Orient our hearts. Is there anything we need to repent of? Today, God, I pray that you would bring that to our minds, that we'd, that we'd come clean to you. God, that we'd confess to you, to each other. God, I just pray that you would make yourself very clearly known today. That as we approach our work weeks, whether that starts later today or tomorrow, God, I pray that you would give us a, not just a new perspective, but new minds, a renewed mind, God, to see you in everything that we're doing. God, to see you in our coworkers, but also give us wisdom, God, to see and really interrogate what our organizations are doing and where you want to do work in those places, God. And give us, and for those of us maybe who are wrestling with feeling really torn about things that are happening at work and maybe whether we need to leave or have a conversation with someone, God, I pray that you would give wisdom to those people. You encourage those people to speak up to have the right words, God, that the Holy Spirit would give them the words in that moment. God, I pray that New Community Covenant Church, as we scatter this week, would be a blessing in every place that we go Monday through Friday, Lord. God, that you would be magnified, that your wisdom, that your shelter, your dwelling place would spread as we go, God, that we would not only bring your truth to those places, God, but that we would also bring your love. So God, do the impossible on us this week, God. It doesn't mean we're going to be happy all day at work, but God, I do pray that you would help us to have a renewed mind, to, to see you clearly, to, to really be thankful to God that as we number our days and as you give us wisdom, we're so thankful for the breath of life that you've given us. And God, my prayer is that you would this week establish the work of our hands. Ground it in you, 
make something of our work in the short time that we have on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the ushers up uh, forward to receive the offering. So if you haven't had a, mo- uh, haven't had a chance to, uh, there's a prayer card or and a welcome card in your bulletin if you need a minute to fill that out. Um, and you can drop it in the basket as it passes. Or if you still need time to write, there's a basket toward the back there. There's a big yellow sign. You can just drop it in. No, don't drop it in there. Take it to the hospitality table later on. Uh, let, me, let me pray quickly for the offering. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for uh, the ways you've, you've been so generous to our church. I thank you, God, for the generosity that you've uh, consistently engendered out of our congregation. I pray that this week would be no different. Um, and God, especially as, we're, as we um, are thinking about work, God, I pray that as we give this week, uh, as the basket goes around, that we'd be placing ourselves and our work a basket as a sacrifice to you this week as well. Lord, we are living sacrifices to you. I pray that you would do with us as you will. Teach us to be obedient to you this week in generosity um, and in sharing your love with your people. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. benediction this morning is going to come from Psalm 90. I'm just going to read a few verses and pray over us. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, we brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So God, this morning we pray that you would show us your way this week at work in the places that we go, raise our children, things that we do, the work that you have given us, Lord. I pray that we would see that this is holy work, that we would not divorce our faith from our work, but God, that we would see that this is ministry you give us. And so Lord, I pray sanctify the work we have to do sanctify us as we do it give us wisdom humility as we go about it Lord so bless the week ahead pray that you keep us from sickness protect us God heal those who are sick God I pray for an amazing week where we come together on Good Friday speaking of the amazing testimonies of the ways that you have shown up this week to us we pray in faith. We pray thankful. We love you, Lord. We love you. Pray that you would help us to love you even more this week as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.